This is the West Virginia Soccer Association Beyond the Pitch podcast on the WVSA Digital Network. From the Sport Pens International Studios in Charleston, West Virginia, here's your host, Marcus Cole. Welcome to the podcast. We have another great show for you. Before we welcome our guest, I want to remind you to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. This helps us get the word out to others and let them know that we're providing valuable information designed for soccer players, coaches, referees, and parents here on the WVSA Digital Network. With us is Dr. Ashley Coker-Cranny, psychotherapist with Whole Brain Solutions. Doctor, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be here. And we're happy to have you because we're going to be talking about depression today. Um, Our subject is the NCAA Sports Science Institute released an infographic uh, not too, too long ago. I think it was late last week uh, about the increase in depression among collegiate athletes. So we figure uh, a doctor would be a great person to have on the program to talk to us about that, not necessarily about that uh, research, uh, but talk to us about depression in general, talk about warning signs, what we can do, what programs can do, and just some other things dealing with the mental game and the mental stresses that come with being a collegiate athlete. So doctor, why don't we go ahead and dive right into things and just simply talk to us, what is depression? Yeah, so depression is one of those words that kind of gets thrown around a lot, just like anxiety does. Um, In a clinical sense, when we're talking about depression, there are kinds of different combinations of of symptoms that make up different kinds of types of depression. So most commonly when we're talking about depression, what we're really talking about is major depressive disorder um, from a clinical standpoint. And what that requires is that um, the individual has experienced kind of this depressed mood, this hopelessness, of all the the symptoms that go along with it for at least two weeks nearly every day if not every day um, and that it's not resolved with rest so sometimes depression kind of gets confused with burnout um, with adjustment issues with um, you know kind of other different um, categories of things but when we're really talking about true depression it is a nearly every day just kind of oh i can't I, I feel hopeless. I feel um, I feel like it's never going to get better. I I just I feel blah um, every day for at least two weeks, and nothing helps. Um, it's kind of depression. Depression is an interesting one um, in terms of clinical diagnoses because sometimes we get depressed because there's just an imbalance, kind of physiologically, whether that's in neurotransmitters or hormones or different things like that that medication can really help with. But sometimes depression happens from environmental stressors that are prolonged and ongoing, like we've seen with COVID, um, but also just could be things kind of in an athlete's everyday environment. Maybe that's scheduling issues or, or classes or ongoing relationship issues or things like that that are just really overwhelming the system um, in a way that kind of leads to this belief system that, you know, just I, I just can't engage. Um, there's no point because it always feels like it's just going to get worse. Um, and a lot of the athletes that, that I meet um, don't necessarily always meet criteria for major depressive disorder, but they're still experiencing enough of the symptoms that it's a problem. Um, so one of the other big things when we talk about clinical depression is that it has to be um, affecting every facet of their life, not just sport or not just school, but kind of everything, um, and that we can't attribute those feelings and those experiencing and those symptoms to anything that's maybe physiological or medical in nature or related to substances. Um, 
are kind of the big things to determine whether something is actually depression versus that kind of colloquial, oh, I'm feeling depressed kind of place. What are some signs and symptoms that we should be on the lookout of, of clinical being clinically depressed? Yeah, so, so one of the first, um, and I think one of the ones that we are most well aware of is a depressed mood. Um, and what I mean by depressed mood is that could be a sense of like sadness. I think that's what we typically think of. But it could also be a sense of like emptiness, hopelessness. Um, and especially if we're talking about like young adults and adolescents, that could even be irritability or anger. Um, because those tend to, especially in the sport environment, um, to be a little bit more acceptable behaviors, sometimes what it, or some, uh, acceptable emotions, sometimes what it is that depression looks like is actually irritability or anger, but most commonly it's sadness or emptiness or hopelessness. Um, one of the other really common ones that lets us know it's depression is just a loss of interest or a loss of pleasure. Um, so things that used to be really enjoyable are suddenly not. Um, this gets complicated in an athletics environment where maybe it's been kind of recreational in nature and now all of a sudden it's elite, whether that's going from high school to collegiate or whether that's going to professional or whatever it is, where it's kind of this element of, oh, sport is a job now. Um, we kind of have to tease apart, okay, is this a loss of interest in everything in my life or most things in my life or just in sport because the context has changed. Um, other really common side um, uh, symptoms are like weight changes up or down clinically we look for about a five percent change um but it may be a little bit different we look for changes in sleep so either all of a sudden i'm not sleeping hardly at all and i don't feel like i'm tired or i can't sleep or i'm sleeping all the time and it feels like i can't really stay awake um fatigue i think is another one of the common symptoms that really comes up um one of the other ones that is less well known is just a general sense of worthlessness or guilt that seems to be placed inappropriately um, and what that might be is like, oh, my my team lost and it's all my fault and this drill went bad and that's all my fault. And my teacher got angry at the class for not listening and that's all my fault. And really the sense of like, I'm a terrible person and I'm responsible for all these things that objectively I'm really not. Um, but placing that inappropriate guilt um, is another symptom of depression. Um, negative changes in concentration are another big hallmark of depression, particularly because we're getting a little bit more detached. We're feeling a little bit more hopeless. We're feeling a little bit more uh, fatigued. Then it's much harder to kind of stay engaged and stay on track and kind of concentrate with what's happening. Um, and then thoughts of death or suicide are, are other symptoms of depression, uh, especially at the clinical level. Now, with, when you mentioned the, the displaced guilt, um, and it just kind of brought something into my mind, um, do you... I mean, I don't know if you've seen research or what have you, but is that... Is that more prevalent with female athletes than it is with male athletes, depression? Um, yeah, uh, depression in general tends to get diagnosed more in female athletes than it does male athletes. Um, and also just the general population. Women tend to have uh, a greater prevalence of the uh, depression diagnoses than men do. That said, I don't know. I'm not convinced with the research that we have access to. I'm not convinced that that is because women actually have depression more than men do. I think that there is um, an interesting stigma that makes it more difficult to um, seek help for depression in certain contexts than others. I think that it's been more widely accepted as a society for women to say, I'm depressed, I need help, than it has been for men. And I think that that's one of the tricky things when we're talking about athletes in particular, is that same kind of like, you have to be tough kind of attitude. Um, typically, research is showing us that between like 15 and 20% of college athletes 
uh, do have clinical or subclinical depression, um, but that, that it is reported um, at a much lower rate than non-athletes report depressive symptoms or, or clinical depression. And that's so much to do, at least in the research, uh, and I would agree anecdotally with the clients that I see, it's so much to do with this idea that you have to be tough, that if you were to um, expose some kind of emotional vulnerability, that that would make you weak and that that's not accepted in sport. And so I just better be quiet, keep quiet about it and not uh, let anybody know that I'm kind of feeling this way or I've been experiencing these symptoms. And so I'm just not going to ask for help. So even though depression um, is pretty similar in terms of rates across athletes and non-athletes, it tends to be underreported in athletic environments. Um, and then we do see some gender discrepancies there as well. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah. if, if I'm a student athlete and I think I may be suffering from depression, what are some things that I can do to improve my situation? Yeah, first is, is acknowledge it, bring it to light, whether that's with a trusted friend, a trusted coach, a trusted teammate, a trusted parent, um, having a conversation, starting that conversation um, in, in a safe place where you can experience the support that you need is one of the best things that you can do. One of the things we do know about with athletes in depression is that um, they tend to have pretty favorable uh, outcomes when they have really good relationships with parents and teammates and coaches. And so that connectedness is a major protective factor um, for depression. It's one of the things that we use in treatment, um, things like that. So one of the first things that you think that you might be suffering from depression is reach out and talk to somebody um, that you know or at least are fairly confident and kind of hold that space and, and help you navigate what to do next. Um, the second is if I just named off all of those symptoms and you said, yep, that's been me for the last month, reach out for clinical help. Find someone who is a licensed mental uh, health professional who can help you with that. Um, there's a lot of intricacies to kind of working with depression, working through depression. And like I said, there are different causes for it. Um, so really enlisting that help of, of a licensed professional is helpful. Um, one of the cautions that I have for anybody who thinks that they might be depressed is be careful what it is that you read on Google. Um, yeah. as much good information as is there diagnosing yourself with Dr. Google or any of the, you know, different checklists. Yes, this tells you if you're clinically depressed, all that kind of stuff. Um, be wary of those because even in a clinical setting, we may do an assessment where we look through this this checklist of, okay, do they have this number of those symptoms for this period of time and that kind of stuff. Um, we aren't going to diagnose anybody with, with major um, depression unless we've also had, you know, kind of an interview and some interactions with, and some contextual factors that say, yes, that diagnosis makes sense. Um, because depression can share symptoms with other disorders um, and other difficulties and things like that, it's really important that you have a, a professional there who can help you kind of navigate, is this really major depressive disorder and what are my options? Or is this something else that what it is that I'm seeing looks like depression, but it's actually something else that needs a different type of treatment. Um, so yeah, I would say reaching out is going to be kind of the first thing um, and, and finding a professional that's kind of risen to that level um, is definitely important. And that that could mean just having a conversation of like, okay, well, what would what would things look like if I were to um, sit down and meet with you? And someone like me is going to say, well, we're going to have a clinical intake. I'll learn a lot more information about you. I'll talk about what it is that I do. We'll make sure that I'm a good fit. You know, we'll kind of go through the whole process so that you have a really good idea of what 
what that really looks like. But um, yeah, to absolutely open up the lines of communication um, with someone that you can trust and experience support from is, is definitely kind of the first first big thing followed by getting professional help. Yeah, you got to ask for help. Uh, that's I, yeah. that's the only way, and we and we have to be able to uh, tell these athletes you have to ask for help. Um, yeah, you know, because no only 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 you know what's going on within you, and yeah. you know you just have to have uh, come forth and and not be afraid to tell someone that there's something's not right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, in professional spaces, we've been talking about depression and anxiety and and um, similar kinds of issues and concerns as really being these invisible disabilities that people are struggling with. And as we've seen more professional athletes come out and talk about their struggles with it, we're shedding a little bit more light on it, but no, no one can read your mind. No one can know exactly what it is that's going on. So there needs to be a conversation. Um, and that conversation is not all on the athlete. Part of that is on parents and coaches and teammates setting up spaces to let athletes know I'm open to talking to you about whatever. Right. And, um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned about parents because that was my follow-up was, you know, if I'm mm-hmm. a parent of a student athlete and I see changes uh, within my child off at college, what can I do to help? Yes. Have the conversation. It's going to be awkward. You're both going to feel weird about it. And you may even get stonewalled the first time or second time or third time you try and have that conversation, but have the conversation because every time you, you initiate that contact, what you're doing is opening that possibility that I'm here and I'm listening and what you feel is important. Um, during that conversation, even if you don't throw out the D word, because sometimes it's stigmatized, you know, but you say, Hey, like I, I've noticed that man, you just, you've been a little bit irritable lately and it seems like you're not really getting a whole lot of sleep and, you know, it looks like eating has been a, diff- a little bit different. And I just, I'm, I'm, what's going on, you know, kind of opening that up when they tell you validate that. Um, one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we dismiss that and we say, Oh, well, it's just because you're homesick or, Oh, well, it's just because you're adjusting to college or, Oh, it's just because you're burned out. Every time that we do that, we shut down the possibility of them opening up and saying, no, this is a, a real significant issue that I need help with. Um, so as a parent being able to open opportunities and then making sure to validate whatever answers come by, are some of the most important things. And if you're a parent of, of a youth athlete or a high school athlete, now's the time to lay the groundwork that we don't shy away from hard feelings, that you don't have to be tough 100% of the time, um, that sometimes hard things happen and sometimes we need help. And so setting up that environment early makes it easier to have those conversations later. You know, then you can sit down and, because you've been saying it since they were five years old, you can say, hey, you mentioned this the other day. Do we need to have a conversation about that? And if they say no, they say no, but at least they know that it's on the table. And if they say yes, then now you've had that conversation, then you validate it, and then you help them find whatever professional help it is that they need. And that sets up for future uh, interactions going forward, which is wonderful. Exactly. Um, now, right. as a as a mental health professional, um, Obviously, I think a big area that we can um, help is through the athletic departments. What advice would you give to athletic departments uh, to help in student athletes combating depression? Yeah, I mean, same thing that I just said for kind of parents um, starting starting the conversation in general. 
we have to destigmatize mental illness. It, it has to be something that is talked about openly and honestly, and is not a sign of, oh, you're a problem athlete, or oh, we don't want to deal with you, or things like that. So if athletic departments can start setting up um, spaces where it's okay to talk about mental health, sometimes that means that you know coaches are encouraged to just examine what it is that they're going through so that they can think about what it is that their athletes are going through so then that they can start having those conversations. Um, sometimes that looks like psychoeducation meetings. Those aren't always successful. Um, but the fact that you even invest in time and energy to say, I want you to be here and sit down and listen to this person talk for the next hour about depression um, says this is important, this matters. And you can kind of start building that environment that says we care about your mental health and we want to help you kind of work through it. Um, and then in terms of like training and those kinds of things, everybody in that athletic department in whatever staff position they find themselves needs to be aware of signs and symptoms of depression and needs to um, get training and how to recognize those and then how to follow up when they do experience those. Um, and part of that is also understanding what is kind of the protocol in that athletic department for if you suspect that there's a mental health issue. Um, so there are certain departments across certain universities and things like that that they um, almost have like a reporting database of, hey, I haven't talked to my athlete yet, but here's athlete X and this is what it is that I've noticed so that somebody within a, a mental health capacity can kind of be monitoring that and can kind of check back up on that um, and can maybe even determine if there's a way to reach out to that athlete, things like that. So depending on the athletic department, it looks different. Um, but the main things are to provide training to the staff to uh, build awareness with the athletes through some psychoeducation, um, small groups, um, infographics, whatever it is to kind of build that out. Um, and then some kind of kind of monitoring system or at least making sure that everybody's aware of whatever the protocol is for, for that department to identify who's at risk, who's actively dealing with it, and then what's to kind of be done next um, and what the referral process looks like. Yeah, we need to invest in these kids need to invest yeah. more, you know, more on the, the human side than we do the athlete side uh, sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we've, we've created a culture that says like, oh, because you're an athlete, you're somehow immune from this stuff. And the reality is athletics, as protective as it is, and there are a zillion reasons why it's an amazing and protective environment. It also carries certain stressors that actually make us more susceptible um, to mental health issues. And so we have to be able to make sure that we're taking care of both sides. Yep, I agree. Um, something else while we're sort of around this subject, um, I guess I've had some people have talked to me about it and have asked about it that next time that you were on to uh, ask uh, this question. But um, mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, I believe that players should have, um, a, a, I guess, maybe a simple expectation of what they want from their college athletic experience. I think sometimes mm -hmm. we get a little bit too delusional and we get a little bit too um, caught up in maybe what society we expect from society um, and other things, but what can athletes do to make, just as an example, you know, you get somebody that goes off to college and usually as a freshman, nine times out of 10, they're not playing. They're kind of sitting, you know, they're sitting there not doing a whole lot. Then as they get a little bit older, just because they've got, you know, older players on the team that have more experience in that environment and stuff. And then, well, you know, I really want to play. And then, you know, well, I, then maybe they're playing and it's like, oh, I really want to start. And, you know, and managing mm -hmm. our expectations a little bit, what can, uh, these athletes do to manage those expectations when it comes to collegiate uh, athletics? 
Yeah, um, I would say before you get to college, start thinking about what it is that you really want out of college athletics. Is it that you're hoping that there's some level of, of fame or recognition or status from, oh, I'm going to be a starter on whatever team it is that I go to? Um, you know, if that's the case, then consider what environment you have the best chance of doing that for. If that's the only thing that you want out of it, that's fine. Meet everyone where they are. Um, but then you need to go to a school where you can actually do that. Um, and, and you're not going to be able to do that at every school. Um, you know, there are oftentimes where I hear athletes go, oh, well, you know, I was always the best where I was. And then I got to this place and I'm no longer the best. And I have no idea how to handle that. And that's like, well, yeah, because you weren't ever challenged to do it. And, and you didn't choose to go to a place where you knew you could kind of step into that role. I don't think there's anywhere you can guarantee that anyway. But I think reflecting on it is really important to kind of recognize, oh, maybe that's not the expectation that's going to keep me satisfied and passionate throughout my career is there something else that I can get out of it so maybe one of the things that that you know high school junior high whoever athletes kind of look at is what what are the values that I'm getting from sports do I love just being around people so that even if I don't get that starting role I'll still be really happy to be that practice player who makes everybody else on my team better because I get to be around people that I care about and I get to play a sport that I love or, you know, kind of whatever that is. That's not to say that nobody, that, that athletes should go into it not dreaming of greatness or not dreaming of starting or not wanting to work for any of that. But I'm with you that having kind of this simpler expectation of what's really important to me about the sport, reflect on why you started that sport in the first place or why it is that you chose to specialize in that sport. If you chose um, to specialize in soccer when you were 15 years old instead of volleyball and basketball, what was it about soccer that you really loved? And what is it that you're looking for when you get to college to kind of continue to echo what it is that you love? If you just love the feeling of pushing your body to the limits and seeing how far it would go, then you don't have to start to get that feeling. You can get that feeling when you're fitness testing. You can get that feeling when you're in practice. Um, you can get that feeling in the off season. You can get that feeling all kinds of places um, that are not kind of the glory and the status um, that so often we kind of attach to it. So I think doing a lot of reflection on our values and how it is that we can get those met in multiple ways really helps us to manage our expectations once we're there. Um, the other thing, too, is, is talk to older athletes that have gone through that process, that came in and wanted to start as a freshman and didn't and were disappointed and then had to work their way up to, you know, just a player that contributes to then becoming a starter. How did they navigate that process? How did they deal with those uh, expectations? What kinds of lessons can you as a freshman learn from your upperclassmen who have kind of navigated that before? Um, and also have very honest conversations with your coaches about your expectations. Um, it's really, really difficult to feel fulfilled and excited and what it is that you're doing if you haven't all agreed on why that's important and what is actually realistic um you know coaches coaches may say like yeah you know if you work hard enough anything is possible and i'm sure that it absolutely is but it's also important for coaches to know that you really want to learn how to be a good teammate or that you really want to learn to be a good leader and so then they can help provide the kinds of opportunities but let you capitalize on those expectations that are a little bit less tangible than the playing time is or than the, the number of started games are and those kinds of things. I remember uh, watching an interview one time with Anson Dorrance, who's the uh, head coach at the University uh -huh. of North Carolina women's soccer, and he's recruited in the past players that he knew 
would not be starters on the team in mm-hmm. all four of their years. They may not get many minutes at all in their four mm-hmm. years, but they were such great people of character. And he wanted yeah. them in the program to to help foster great character in the players on the team. And he said yeah. he would explain that that this is the role that I want you to play. You are such a great person. You work hard. I want you to be the example. Now, I can't promise you this and that, but this is, you know, the role that I see you playing. And I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that of being, you know, and if that's, you know, if you're that person go, yeah, I would love to do that. I want to be the example. I want to help my teammates, you know, because we, as, as leaders on teams, you want to rise everybody just because somebody else gets success doesn't diminish you or your success. It, it just, you know, you build everybody up and honestly, the, the, the better the leader, the more successful everybody is around them than them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes back to very good coaches are able to recruit a whole team and all parts of a team, not just one aspect of a team. If you're only recruiting on talent and superstar status and, you know, those kinds of things, I mean, can you imagine if the Bulls were made up of five Michael Jordans on the starting lineup? Oh, mercy. Like, no, no, nobody, they'd be fighting over the ball. Nobody's passing it. Exactly. Exactly. So good coaches are going to recruit athletes, like you said, for those, for those different, more supporting roles. And so, you know, as, as athletes, when you're getting recruited, ask those questions. What is it that you want me here for? What is it that you want me to focus on? You know, maybe it's not a, hey, I want you to spend four years just demonstrating good character. Maybe it is. But ask those questions up front so then you know. And if that's not what it is that you want, if that doesn't align with your expectations, then cross that school off your list and look somewhere else. It may not be kind of the the glory that you're looking for, but, um, you know, then you get the role that you want. I mean, role acceptance is so vital to um, satisfaction that we need to be having these conversations about what are the coaches' expectations, what are the athletes' expectations, how do those mesh. And we also, I think as a society, just need to do a better job of saying, like, there's nothing wrong with being the really good character, lead by example kind of athlete. If you only get 25% minutes each game, there is nothing wrong with that. And you know, the, and you know, the, making, and you know the reason why behind that is because in four years, you, you're done becoming an athlete. You become a person. Right. <laughs> You know, what, what, yeah. where, what's going to matter, that good character or that 25, you know, 20 minutes a game? Yeah, nobody's going to remember exactly how many minutes you had just yep. about sweating it. Yep, absolutely. And that's the paradigm shift I think that we need to make all, all the, through all levels of sport that we haven't quite made yet. Um, because we don't, we, don't pre- we don't prepare athletes to no longer be athletes. And then we wonder why transitions are difficult. Right, absolutely. But that's a different topic. I'll, I won't get on that so far. <laughs> All right, doctor, as we wrap things up here, I've got one more question for you. I know um, this is something that I know a lot of athletes deal with. They get inside their heads when it comes to their performance in athletics and they overthink things and, you know, they come out of a training session. They're like, oh, I had a horrible training session or they came, oh, I didn't play well enough. And um, 
you know, usually that's not the case. It's just overblown in their heads. What can players do to balance that being self-aware? Because, you know, some people may not be the best technically in soccer. They may not be the fastest. They not may not be the most physical. Um, they may not have that soccer IQ that others have. But what can players do to balance that being self-aware of who they are and what they bring to the table and enjoying the experience of collegiate athletics? Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of parts to this. One part, I think, is recognizing when to be very uh, introspective and self-aware and when to be automatic and just perform. So when the athletes that I work with, by the time they get into a game, I don't want you to be introspective during the game. I want you to be in the moment. I want you to be automatic. I want you to be just moving and doing what it is that works for you. Um, and, and I don't want you to be judging that while you're doing it. But the place for introspection is is great during training, at the end of training, at night when you're going over the last week's worth of, of you know, trainings and lists and everything else that you've kind of had. I think knowing, being able to kind of um, turn the volume up on introspection when it's appropriate to do it and then turn it all the way down, I think it's one of the best things that athletes can do to kind of get out of their heads. And there are lots of different ways to do that. For some athletes, um, it's almost like you set uh, a time that you're allowed to be introspective and really dig into stuff and that kind of stuff. Maybe it's like 6 to 6.30 every night. I can take the time to really dig into it. But then outside of that, I'm going to turn that off. So you kind of get that practice every day so that by the time game time comes, you know, a year from now when you're, when you're um, in your sophomore year, then you can just be automatic when you're when you're kind of called upon to do that um, another thing that I think really helps is just taking perspective again with athletes we train them to look at the bad stuff right so like when my son finishes a training session and he gets back in the car on the way home I say what are the three things that you did really great today what are two things that you struggled with and what's one thing that you learned so I get him in the habit of we can acknowledge what it is that you need to work on but we're going to frame it and orient it in a way that is growth promoting and exciting and those kinds of things. Um, other things that I've been telling athletes to do is like, okay, you had a particularly difficult lift or training session or whatever it was, and you've got this just dialogue playing in your head about all the things that you did wrong, and that just brings up all these other things that you did wrong three months ago and three years ago and everything else. When you get home, write all of that down. Um, you're, there's an advantage to writing things down on paper, and that is that you're getting bilateral stimulation, so you're having your brain kind of talk to itself. Um, but the second piece that happens is after you have it all written down, leave it for an hour or two hours or three hours, and then come back to it and cross out everything that no longer matters. If you were to take a bird's eye view of your experience of this terrible training session, what are the pieces of that that you need to remember that will help you get better, and what's the stuff that you can trash? Well, I want to remember that I need to make sure that I am keeping my head on a swivel. Okay, so cross out all of the other information about how you're never going to learn and you're never going to get it right and your teammates are going to hate you and your coach is going to yell at you. Like, we don't need any of that other stuff. We just need to remember my head on a swivel. So cross all the stuff out that doesn't matter. Being able to kind of zoom in to here's what it is that's happening when I'm really, really aware and then zoom back out of, okay, now I don't need all that stuff. What do I take with me so that when it's time to be automatic, I can just be automatic. And then when I get to that game, I've got that cue phrase, head on a swivel. 
And so I'm remembering to look over my shoulder. I'm remembering to listen to my keeper. I'm remembering to cue into my coach, whatever it is, um, to kind of help me remember that stuff. Um, I think those are some of my bigger tips for athletes who are having some difficulty with that balance. Um, and the last thing that I would say too is remember that your thoughts are not always reflections of reality. So if you've had a whole bunch of kind of hyper awareness on, um, you know, how your performance has been going lately, remember that some of that makes sense and does reflect reality, but some of that is totally overblown. So just being aware of your own cognitive biases of we've all got a tendency towards the spotlight effect. That's like, man, I made this one mistake. Everybody saw it. Everybody's judging me for it. Um, in reality, that's probably not true. You might see it on film, but outside of that, most people probably missed that mistake that you made. Um, it just feels like they did because we all have this tendency towards, towards the spotlight effect. We've all got a confirmation bias. If I go into a game thinking that I'm going to make a mistake because I'm not very good and there's no reason why I should be playing in the first place and all of this kind of stuff, then I'm going to look for all the evidence that confirms that. When the reality is that there was probably a whole lot of evidence that I didn't pay any attention to because I was so in my head about all the ways that, you know, things were going to go poorly for me. So I think being able to be aware of those and then go, oh, that was a thought that I had. That wasn't reality. Because you can sit here in my office and you can tell me over and over and over again that you can't walk. But the, at the end of our session, you're going to get up and walk out of my office because thoughts aren't reality in most circumstances. They're just kind of these these events that happen. So if we can keep that bigger perspective of what's the information that I want to keep versus what's the stuff that's just my brain chattering because that's what it does. And this is the kind of chatter it learned to say, um, then we can kind of step back and, and be a little bit more automatic and stop stunting our performance. You bring up film and that's a funny thing. It popped idea popped in my head. Uh, Back when I coached and, and we used to film the matches and, um, you know, player would tell me, oh, this was, you know, I had such a horrible match. My, you know, touch wasn't good. I was, you know, I was giving the ball up to the other team. And then we go back and look at it. And then all of a sudden the athlete's like, yeah, okay, I guess I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. Yeah. As a coach, give your athletes highlight reels. Like every now and again, throw them a different week that instead of all the things that they did wrong that you want them to, to make sure to remember for next week, give them a highlight reel of the 13 things that they did really, really well. Yeah. They're going to make other mistakes. You can come back to them later, but give them an opportunity to, to kind of have that surprise attack of, Oh, I can reorient to the good stuff that I do too. And I think one thing athletes miss out on, and I've always been a, a, a proponent of this is double, triple, quadruple down on the things you do. Great. You know, and I'm, I'm not overly worried about because, I mean, there are so many things in this world that I am horrible at, you know, mm -hmm. brain surgery. I'm horrible at, um, you know, <laughs> flying an airplane. I am horrible at, I, you know, I've never done it, but I, you know, I would be horrible at it. So, I mean, there's so many yeah. things that we're horrible at, but there's like, you know, three or four things that I'm really, really good at. And, you know, and I double down on them, triple down on them, quadruple down. And then if I have to incorporate some other things that I'm not, that's not those three or four things, I do my best to hide it as much as possible and, you know, put myself into a situation where, you know, it's not as noticeable, but I think we miss that mm -hmm. point of, you know, do the things that, that you're good at, you know, and capitalize yeah. on that. Yeah. And take those things that you're good at and then go chase failure with those things that you're good at. 
So you may not very, be very good in this kind of a pattern. You may not be very good in that kind of a position. But when you get to college, all of a sudden you're playing a different system or you're playing a different position rather than, than uh, uh, hiding from that or trying, trying to pretend like it doesn't exist. Say, you know what? Here's the things that I'm good at and how can I bring that to this system or this position or this role? Absolutely. And really kind of figure out how to highlight that. Yep. That's, I agree a million percent on that. All right, doctor, we certainly, uh, I won't take any more of your time, but we certainly appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about uh, mental wellness and some tips for our, uh, for our collegiate athletes and those who aspire to be collegiate athletes. Dr. Ashley Coker Cranny, psychotherapist with Whole Brain Solutions. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Remember, make sure you like, subscribe, and share our program here on the WVSA Digital Network. Thank you for listening to the West Virginia Soccer Association Beyond the Pitch podcast. You can catch a brand new episode every Thursday morning here on the WVSA Digital Network. Or find us on our social media platforms at WV Soccer. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.